6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapters 3 and 4. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Paul's letters to Timothy. We thank you, Father, for this instruction as we recognize that we are all called to a full-time ministry. Help us to understand that ministry. Help us to be prepared properly as we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Philemon is technically a pastoral epistle also, but we usually include that when we do Colossians. So we're talking about three epistles in the series, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And we took First and Second Timothy chapters one and two last time. We're in chapters three and four tonight. Now, of the New Testament organization, there are five historical books, just like there are five books of Moses. There's five books that are really uh, chronicles. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and two volumes, volume one and volume two, and John, Acts being volume two of Luke. Then we have 13 epistles by Paul, and uh, eight that are Jewish Christian epistles. We believe Hebrews is also by Paul, but I won't get into that issue here. Uh, Romans and Hebrews are probably the primary foundational doctrinal epistles of the group, but the uh, seven churches that Paul wrote to are very interesting because they parallel the seven epistles that Jesus included in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The three prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, of course, were also written by Paul when he was in Rome in, uh, in, in, uh, under arrest. But uh, it's the three uh, pastoral epistles, as they're called, First Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, that are the pastoral epistles. And so with all that, we want to remind ourselves that even though these are letters by Paul, they are intended to be read by more than just Timothy, by the way. That'll become clear by his use of uh, pronouns near the end, as you'll see. He understood that these would be circulated. But we need to understand that all Scripture, including these letters, are given by God. When I say inspiration of God, by the way, that literally in the Greek says God breathed. God breathed. That's what the word really means. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction. Fancy words, what do they mean? Well, doctrine, what's right? For reproof, that is, what's not right? Things to correct. That's what these days of affliction, the 10 days before Yom Kippur are partly about. For correction, how to get right. And of course, for instruction, how to stay right. So that's one way to perhaps give these abstract words some operational significance for you. Paul's background. Let's just review this to refresh our perspective before we jump in. He was arrested in Jerusalem about year AD 57, and he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years for his own protection, strangely. And uh, Paul's voyage to Rome, uh, to be, where he was to be tried before Caesar, started about uh, AD 59, a shipwreck on, and three-month stay on Malta, and then he arrived in Rome about February of 60 AD. 
He lived while there in, under house arrest, in effect, and had liberty, though, to minister. And that's when the so-called prison epistles, we believe, were written. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and also Philemon, the letter to Philemon. There's two Roman captivities. This was the first one of them. And he was acquitted on the charges and then released. And during the following two years, he ministered in various places. And that's when he wrote 1 Timothy, the letter we're studying, and also the letter to Titus. It was during, uh, after being released from that first imprisonment. In about 65 AD, he was arrested again. This time he's put in a dungeon. He knew it was final. He wrote 2 Timothy, probably his last letter, knowing that he was facing this time execution. And so now Timothy, the other party in all of this, was a son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And uh, no mention is made of his father being Christian, but his influence was very strong from both his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. He obviously was well taught in the scriptures. Even though he's very young, uh, he was obviously knew, his, knew the word. And he was living at Lystra when Paul, during Paul's first missionary journey. But uh, we, we don't have any record of them making contact. We presume they did because it's on his second missionary that he calls him to join, to join Paul. So he apparently earned a good reputation. And Paul was probably not the one that led him to Christ. We assume it was probably his grandmother or mother. But uh, he did ordain. Paul ordained the young minister. And had great confidence in him. In fact, that's one reason these letters are so useful is because they're letters to his protege, a young kid that needed counsel, help, encouragement. And, and uh, we should uh, not fall into the trap of assuming that these letters are for somebody else in a sense of speaking they're for us. Because hopefully we, in some small way, qualify as, as Timothy's. And uh, he all, at any rate, he already knew and believed the Old Testament scriptures thanks to his upbringing. And... Uh, his promise for ministry was recognized early. Paul makes several allusions to that. And we even get the impression there were some prophetic utterances uh, uttered over him. And that's mentioned several times in these letters. And uh, he re Paul referred to him as a spiritual son, if you will. A son of the faith and dear son. Not literally a son, but a son of the faith. And uh, Paul took him as a companion. And he ended up becoming one of the most trusted co-laborers. And... Uh, uh, he was probably a little more meek than uh, uh, Titus. Titus was Paul's troubleshooter. But Timothy also took on some tough, tough assignments. Timothy became Paul's faithful representative messenger. He's listed all through the book of Acts and, and, these and many of these letters. And six of Paul's letters include Timothy in the salutations. So when he greets these other letters, it's Paul and Timothy from wherever. And uh, there's a very touching appeal. In 2 Timothy, his last letter, there's a touching appeal for him to for Timothy to gather his notebooks and stuff and come, come see him before he dies. And so, uh, so after being released from his first imprisonment, he had Timothy at his side. He then revisited some of the churches he founded, including Ephesus, where he leaves Timothy to minister. And uh, so and Ephesus was not an easy place to minister. It was a pagan capital of the world at that time in many ways. So it was tough turf that, that Timothy had to deal with. And so he wrote uh, Timothy a letter, urging him, encouraging him, and so forth. We get the impression that Timothy may be rather passive, rather timid, very young, easily intimidated probably, and that Paul continually spurs him to action and encourages him to be bold and not to let his youth be a problem. Timothy was, was rather young. He says, let no one despise your youth. And that was given 15 years after he was called by Paul to join him. So, you know, how young was he? he was, so anyway, he was nothing, nothing standing in his way. And uh, to fight the good fight. 
and aggressively promote the gospel. And uh, so, still we find, we get the impression Timothy was easily discouraged. And so that probably gives us comfort, because how many of us don't have to show of hands, but how many of us get easily discouraged? Huh? And we must remember Luke 9.62. And Luke says, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We need to remember that. So, uh, okay. He, uh, Timothy may have had physical problems. We don't know that. We just infer that. But in any case, last time we talked about order of the church. Tonight we'll take a look at the officer of the church and some other issues. So chapter 3 is where we are. Church government. It may, most of us may not have spent much time on this, but there are three basic forms of church government. Episcopal form is one. That's where one or several in charge are at the top, typically outside the local church. This is a carryover somewhat of the, you know, the Roman Catholic model, if you will, where there's bishops and area uh, officials. The, the leader of the local church isn't necessarily a member of the local church. It's a, that's called the Episcopal form. There's a Presbyterian form where representatives are elected from the membership of the, of the fellowship. That's technically called the Presbyterian. I'm not talking about the denominations by that name. Now. I'm just speaking of the term that's used for that form of structure. And the congregational form where the people themselves make all the decisions. All the critical decisions are put to a vote of the membership. And so that's a, they're a different. Now, all of these can work well, but all of them through history have been characterized by strifes and divisions. There isn't any ideal model here. They all have their problems. Each one has a slightly different set of problems. It's no better than the people that are, uh, are uh, in the offices. So that's really one of the things we're going to find. Paul's going to emphasize that there are two critical aspects of any spiritual officer. He has to be a man of faith. And don't just nod and say, well, of course. I suspect most of the people in public ministry, you can argue, may or may not be men of the faith. What faith, really? Come back to that later. But they also, in addition to being competent in terms of doctrine, they also need to be motivated by love. Remember Ephesus, the letter to Ephesus by Jesus Christ. When Paul visited Ephesus in Acts 20, he warned them they're going to be, dece they're going to be deceivers bringing in false doctrine. They apparently heeded that because by the time another three decades go by, when Jesus writes them a letter to Ephesus, he compliments them that they, will not, they do not tolerate those that are not pure in their doctrine. However, they'd lost their first love. The church at Ephesus is described in Revelation 2 is a church that was very strict doctrinally but had lost sight of what they're really all about, and that's love, the first love. So we need both. We need to have a sound faith and motivated by love. There are three responsibilities in the local church. Teach sound doctrine. That sounds basic, doesn't it? Find a church that does. Find a church that does. I'm not speaking any locally. I'm just speaking broadly across the United States. How many major churches don't waste time on found doctrine? Some of those popular churches on television are for all comers. And uh, you never hear the blood of Christ, you never hear his atonement, never hear the need of repentance. I was challenged recently by a good friend of mine who argues that we don't evangelize biblically. He argues that we use worldly me. No wonder we have so many terrors in the church because we don't evangelize. The Bible talks about evangelizing. I said, really? He says, yeah. He asked, he asked me, Chuck, how many times does the word love appear in the book of Acts? The guide for the early church was the book of Acts, right? How many times does the word love appear in the book of Acts? Zero. That's a shock. 
What was the basis? Our accountability to our Creator. That was the theme. Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not minimizing God's love. That's not the point. We oversell that at the expense of righteousness, at the expense of our need for a Savior, uh, etc. And so it's interesting to teach sound doctrine. It's astonishing to discover how few churches really are committed to biblical doctrine. Interesting problem. That means to proclaim the gospel. See, the first 11 verses are going to take, deal with this first one. The next five verses will deal with, or six verses, to proclaim the gospel. And, of course, the final part of this epistle will be to defend the faith. Sounds basic. It's so basic that we tend to not pay attention. Well, of course, yeah, we're not in agreement. Let's get on with it. No, no, wait a minute. A church is to teach sound doctrine, proclaim the gospel. That's what it's all about. It's not about a lot of other worthwhile things they might also do. That's not what they're about. That's what they're about, to defend the faith. Let's just jump in. 1 Timothy 3.1, this is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. That's where this word comes up, episcope. And uh, it means overseer is what it really means. It's not, now, the church has used that in a different way now, so it has a different connotation in our language today. There's also a term called the elder Presbyteros. It's a, technically means an old man, an elder, an old man, but it's an elder. And, and uh, the third ver- word that we use, how many times does it appear in the Bible? Once. The word pastor. I was startled. I was starting to go through. Once. What is a pastor? He's a shepherd. Now, for our purposes, biblically, these three are synonyms. Not in the not in the connotation of our vocabulary in our society, because we use those terms in specialized ways. But biblically, the three are essentially, essentially synonyms. The word bishop, elder, and pastor were essentially synonymous in the New Testament. In the early church, a bishop never had authority over others. That's what shocked us, because that's that's what it's come to mean in our culture. But let's talk about a bishop, whatever he is. He must be blameless, a husband of one wife, Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Wow. Must be blameless. Now, you need to understand that if you're going to be in a position of authority, you will be blamed. And uh, you just have to work hard to make sure they're not justified and aren't true. But you can count on being blamed, whether you're right or wrong. And uh, so there were obviously a plurality of elders in the early church. And um, most of these were qualified. Blameless. Nothing to take hold upon. Above reproach is what it means. That's being more than being innocent. That means being blameless. We're not only supposed to avoid evil. We're supposed to avoid the appearance of evil. You follow me? Husband of one wife. One's more than you can handle anyway, isn't it? Right, guys? Okay. This is not referring, by the way, in any way to marriage after the death of a spouse. That's not what's being dealt with here. And there's plenty of references to that. If, if someone's hung up on that issue. He's got to be vigilant. What that really means, tempered or sober. Tempered in all things, the scripture says. The NIV does it well here. It says, keep your head in all situations. That says it all, doesn't it? You be sober. Have a serious attitude. Be earnest about your work. Know the value of things. Be of good behavior, precisely orderly. The same Greek word is elsewhere translated as modest. Modest. Given to hospitality, that is, loving the stranger. 
apt to teach. It's interesting that pastor is automatically a teacher and certainly a continual student of the Word of God. That's one of the biggest problems in our church today is the illiteracy, the biblical illiteracy of the pastors. They learn a lot in seminary, but not enough about the Bible. It takes a lot of faith to get through seminary. And, uh, and certainly the, 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 the byproduct of that is the tragic biblical illiteracy among Christians. And that's one of the things our institute in its own clumsy way is trying to repair. And uh, so, now some scholars, the place where it says, he speaks to pastors and teachers, they feel that that's really referring to one job, that a pastor can't be a pastor without being a teacher. Some people would argue that. I'm working on that argument. Just be aware there's different viewpoints. To teach and preach is the primary task of the elders, for sure, in any case. And it's all through these passages, especially all through Paul's letters to Timothy. And we do know that Timothy had, among other things, a gift of teaching. That's in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 1. We'll see that showing up. One of the questions that comes up about the rights of an elder, was Paul married? Big debate. Scholars aren't sure. Some hold that Paul was not married, because of some of his expressions suggest that. Most scholars believe that he had been married, that his wife probably had died. Paul had spent so much time in jail, it was probably, he probably had marital problems. They also point out that he could not have been a member of the Sanhedrin without being married. That's what caused them to believe he was married at one time, isn't married now. And so that's, the, that's where we get some of those ideas. The Bible does not forbid all remarriage after divorce. The Lord permitted remarriage when a divorce was caused by adultery. Matthew 5 deals with that. Paul gave a second occasion when the unbelieving spouse initiates the divorce. And that shows up in 1 Corinthians 7 for those that want to dig into that whole issue. Let's continue with 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. The bishop's not given to wine, nor no striker, nor greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, not given to wine. This word that's used there describes someone who sits long with a cup and drinks to excess. That's what's in view there, given, being given to wine. And uh, Paul did advise Timothy to take some wine for health reasons. In 1 Timothy 5, we'll encounter that. Total abstinence was not required of believers. In fact, it was uh, uh, in the Jewish life, there was a great deal of, of uh, sacramental wine involved. There are many Christians that, can, that include a table wine with their meals. However, many of us Abstain from that when in, when in the public to avoid stumbling a brother. My wife and I, occasionally, not very often, occasionally we'll have wine with a deal, with a meal at home. We don't normally do it in a restaurant because we're afraid of stumbling somebody else. Not a striker. What does that mean? Not contentious, not looking for a fight. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Pastors should not pursue money. We're going to talk more about money in the next session. He's to be patient. Gentle is a better translation. Not a brawler, to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Not to be covetous. You can covet many things beside money, by the way. Popularity, size of a ministry, what have you. There are many things to covet. One of the remedies for covetousness is tithing. That'll be a remedy to covetousness, tendency to covetousness. Continuing verse 4. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. That's a, tough, that's a tough grind these days. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Good question. Tough question. One of the biggest enemies 
of a peaceful household are the public schools, the government schools, and the pure relationships that develop there that outweigh God's order. It's a, one of the most exciting things in our country is the rise of homeschooling. The statistics are in. They're the winners. The major universities have discovered that and are after those kids for uh, uh, students. It's astonishing, not only academically, but socially in other ways. They outclass the, the participants in government schools. It's just a reality that the research is uh, revealing very clearly. Ruleth his own house, that is provide, govern, is like a loving shepherd is the model here. So the church is presented here as part of his family, if you will. And we're going to see more about how the church is viewed here in a little bit. He's not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into condemnation of the devil. You know, it's interesting how often someone that is new in the faith, that is given too much responsibility, ends up becoming proud and stumbles. We don't do him a favor by bringing him along too fast. And uh, no, one newly planted is what it means. Because immaturity can include vulnerability to pride. That's a, that's a vulnerability we all have. One of the things I have, try to have my staff help me with. Because you travel and get uh, you know, thousands of people you know, recognizing you. You get celebrity status of sorts. Dangerous. Dangerous. You might start believing your own press releases if you're not careful. And uh, part of that, part of what we try to work on in our own clumsy way is to prevent that well-intended encouragement from the audience not leading to pride. And uh, so that's, we all have that risk. One of the insights to realize is that we always stumble in our strongest suit, not our weakest suit. That comes as a surprise to many. Whatever your strongest suit is, that's the one you're likely to stumble with pride in. That's where your vulnerability is. Peter, what was his main characteristic? Bold, right? Yet he was the one that denied Christ. Pride goes before his destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. We need to, the, the more visibility we have publicly, the more that is a risk. Continuing verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we need a good report within the body, but you also need a good report outside. A good report. What do I mean by that? Does he pay his bills? How many of you have gone to a doctor, a Christian doctor? You know, say, let me show you the trial drawer with the Christian bills. These are the ones that don't pay. They're the ones with the overdue receivables. Lawyers, doctors. I had a lawyer friend of mine cringe every time somebody comes in and walks into the office. Boy, am I glad I found a Christian attorney. Because he knew that would ultimately mean he wasn't going to get paid. Tragic. Many prominent businessmen in the field of finance work hard to keep a secret of the fact that they're a Christian. Because they don't want the stigma that goes with that. Because within the business community, Christians have a bad name. Not all of them, but there is a, a style among some that are abhorrent. When they asked Mahatma Gandhi, what's the biggest obstacle to Christianity in India? He said, Christians, our behavior to the world is not good. Do we have a good reputation among the unsaved and whom he does business? That's a question. 
the one that we want to aspire to be like is one that pay, pays his bills, that has a good ethical reputation. One of the biggest adjustments I've had personally, I spent 30 years in the public boardrooms. 30 years, 12 different boards, public boards, a lot more than that, but 12 public boards. I was chairman and CEO of six of those. My biggest adjustment 17 years ago when I went from that world and made my hobby my profession to get into professional Christianity, writing and speaking, publishing, and in, in professional Christianity, my biggest problem is the poor ethics. Poor ethics. There's better ethics in the corporate boardrooms of America than there is in the Christian publishing community. And uh, I know I promised I'd say that, but I've been praying about it, and the Lord said me to go, well, meanwhile, you've been writing checks on that guy's commitment, you know. And I could go on and on. But the point is, not that they're bad people, they're just untrained. They have no grasp of ethics. Not morality, experts on morality, presumably, but ethics, just plain ethics. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't give a commitment until you're prepared to back it up. The world runs on verbal commitments. My word is my bond. That was the dictum of Wall Street years ago. Not today. But that was, you know, you deal with some of these people. They could have been cheating on their wives for all I know, but in the boardroom, those people were guys, if they said it, you could bank on it. I saw companies formed on handshakes. Millions of dollars committed and, committed and, and, and uh, fulfilled. On, ver on verbal, because my word is my bond. That was the, that was the ethic of, the, of that community. Anyway, let's move on. Does he manifest a wholesome character in his ethics? It's an untaught area, tragically. Going to continue, verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons, this is a lower group, these are the servants, if you will, be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, doesn't say not given to wine, not given to much wine, not greedy, a filthy lucre, same kind of list here. Deacons, that's where we get the word, actually the word is servant, but that's where we get the word deacons as we use it uh, conventionally today. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.